The text is from Psalm 51, verse 11. For the context, let's read that whole psalm. Psalm 51. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Perch me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings then bulls will be offered on your altar. And so the text is, verse 11, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Beloved congregation, brothers and sisters, people often have questions about the Holy Spirit. One of the more frequent questions is about the sin against the Holy Spirit. How do I know if I have committed the unpardonable sin? Or what about one of my loved ones, a child who has gone astray and no longer comes to church or a close relative or friend? Has he or she sinned the unpardonable sin against the Holy Spirit? How do I know? In the text, we see the struggle of David. It's a well-known psalm. In it, he makes his confession about his horrible sin against Bathsheba. In spite of his beautiful confession to the Lord, he nevertheless still struggles. 
as it says, he is afraid that God is going to take his Holy Spirit from him. So he pleads with God not to do that. David lived at a different time than we do today. We live after Pentecost, after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Could an Old Testament believer sin against the Holy Spirit in the same way as the New Testament believer? Did they have the fullness of the Holy Spirit then? And does the Holy Spirit work differently in the Old Testament as he does in the New Testament? Well, brothers and sisters, as we will see, God's Holy Spirit has been and will be and is always forever there and there in a special way for the true believer. That's what I want to preach to you about this morning. The theme is God gives us the indispensable presence of his Holy Spirit. And then we will see that God's Holy Spirit is in the first place a gracious gift, in the second place an essential gift, and in the third place an eternal gift. So God gives us the indispensable presence of his Holy Spirit. First of all, it's a gracious gift. And David was most aware that God had given him his indispensable Holy Spirit. He had been anointed by the prophet Samuel to be king over Israel. The Lord sent Samuel to the hometown of Jesse, David's father, to anoint one of his sons as king. David was still a young man at that time. David's older brothers were first paraded in front of Samuel. They seemed the more obvious choice to Jesse. Samuel, too, was impressed. He especially thought that the eldest son, Eliab, would be the most obvious choice as he was impressive in stature and appearance. But then the Lord tells Samuel that he does not look at his appearance or physical stature, but that he looks at the heart. And so he has Samuel anoint his youngest son, David. And we are told with the anointing that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Other translations state that the Spirit came mightily upon him, or that he came upon him in power. But as we know from 1 Samuel 10, verse 6, that's also what happened to David's predecessor to King Saul. God's Holy Spirit also came powerfully upon him, and he too received God's presence. Yet, as we are told in 1 Samuel 16, verse 14, the Holy Spirit had departed from Saul, and he now possessed an evil spirit. And that puts David's request concerning the removal of God's Holy Spirit within a more specific context. No doubt, David did not want to end up like Saul. He wanted to continue to receive God's Holy Spirit and to experience God's presence. But how does that happen? 
Well, David understood that you cannot control or manipulate the Holy Spirit. Else David would not petition God not to take his spirit away from him. The Holy Spirit belongs to God. The Holy Spirit is God. And he is also God's gift to you. Only God can give himself to you. And therefore only he can remove himself. And so David knew that the gift of the Holy Spirit was a gracious gift from God. In other words, he knew that you receive God's Spirit not because you deserve him or because you have something to offer him, but only because of God's free grace. What does that mean? Why does he give his Holy Spirit to you? Well, God gave his Holy Spirit to David in order to equip him for his task as king, to guide him with his word and spirit as he ruled God's people. The Holy Spirit was also given to inspire him as prophet. God gave him his spirit so that his words could be recorded in the Psalms and other portions of the scriptures. But did God give his Holy Spirit only to those who had a special office, such as prophet, priest, or king? What about all the other people, God's covenant people? Yes, he also gave his spirit to them. Listen to what it says in Isaiah 63, verse 11. And there we read that God's people ask, where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit. The Old Testament believer understood that God had given his Holy Spirit to all of God's people. And that is why Isaiah said in, this, in chapter 63, verse 10, that they rebelled and grieved God's Holy Spirit. He says, in effect, even though my Holy Spirit is among you, you nevertheless have rejected me and my spirit. Oh, sure, the Old Testament believer did not fully understand the work of the Holy Spirit and who he was and how exactly he worked. The Holy Spirit is not mentioned very often in the Old Testament either. He seems to be in the background. But isn't the same thing true of the Lord Jesus Christ? In Genesis, we read about the seed of the woman who would crush Satan. At that time, the Old Testament believers did not know who that seed of the woman would be. But as God's Old Testament people come near to the great events of the birth of the Son of God, through the prophecies and the ceremonies of the law, they slowly but surely get a clearer and greater picture of him. The same thing is true of the Holy Spirit. In the very beginning of the Bible, the Holy Spirit is already introduced. There we read in Genesis 1, verse 2, that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Who is that Spirit? It's the Spirit of God. And that is why God says further in that same chapter, let us make man in our image. He uses the plural, referring to the Father 
Son, and Holy Spirit. And so in creation already, we see the work of the Holy Spirit. And when it says in Genesis that the Spirit was hovering over creation, we are reminded of a bird that provides for and protects its young. In Deuteronomy 32, verse 11, we are given a clear picture of, that, of what that means. Their God is pictured as a bird who guided his nation Israel. He says, like a bird, he guided his great nation Israel like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them on its wings. That's also how the Holy Spirit looks after God's creation, and especially his children. The fact that God's Holy Spirit hovers over all creation means that the Holy Spirit has always existed and is everywhere. He creates and sustains and protects all life. Also yours and mine. Isn't that wonderful? No one and no, nothing can escape him. And David so beautifully expresses that in Psalm 139 where he asks the rhetorical question in verse 7. And we sang about that earlier. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? And so God's Holy Spirit is not there for the individual people, but he is there for all of creation, for every nation and for every people. Moses and Aaron understood this when they, in number 16, verse 22, referred to the God of the Spirit of all flesh, that is, of all mankind. God's Spirit gives life to all men. And that, of course, refers, to, first of all, to physical life. With God's, without God's Holy Spirit, nothing and no one can live. But the Holy Spirit is especially the giver of spiritual life and eternal life, life with God. And that is what Pentecost was all about. After the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Lord God poured out his Holy Spirit to all those who belong to him and who are obedient to him. And he sends him out. He sends out his disciples to all corners of the world with his word and spirit so that all kinds of people may believe in him and be part of God's kingdom. God's Holy Spirit is essential for life, physical life, spiritual life, eternal life. Second point. The question now is, when David asked not to have the Holy Spirit taken from him, does that then mean that that is possible? Can God, because of some sin, remove his Holy Spirit, even if you're a child of God and believe in him. Well, as we saw, God's Spirit is everywhere present. You cannot escape God's Spirit. But it is possible to sin against the Holy Spirit. How? 
Well, the moment you and I sin, then we are doing what the devil wants us to do and not God. At that moment, the Holy Spirit is not with you. That is, for example, what happened with the Apostle Peter when he rebuked Jesus for saying that he would suffer and be killed and raised on the third day. Then Jesus said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are setting your mind, you are not setting your, your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. What did Peter do? He acted according to the flesh, not according to the spirit. When he said that, the spirit was not with him at that moment. And you see, that's the horrible effect of sin. Brothers and sisters, you and I, we sin all the time, don't we? There are so many ways in which we sin against the Holy Spirit and so many ways in which we grieve him. We often live as if the Holy Spirit is not active and not real. Sometimes in ignorance, but sometimes deliberately. When we sin deliberately, then it is Satan's spirit working within us and not the Holy Spirit. What do you do in such a case? Well, then you ask for forgiveness. You repent. You get down on your knees and ask God to restore you. That's something you have to do every day. You have to do that time and again. Repentance, brothers and sisters, is an ongoing daily activity. And then in spite of your sin, God will continue to be with you. He does not abandon you or permanently remove his Holy Spirit from you. But sometimes we live in sin. We know what we're doing is wrong in God's sight. But we love that specific sin and we keep on living in it. Or we fool ourselves into thinking that it is not such a big deal. You see, that's what David did. He did not just sin once at the time when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then repented and asked for forgiveness. No, David hardened himself in that sin. He did not go to the Lord for forgiveness and he did not allow his sin to be exposed. He lived in that sin. He was in denial. It took about a year. And then God graciously brought him back from his wayward path when he confronted him through the prophet Nathan, who by means of a parable had him see the light. And then David repented in sackcloth and ashes. And that is why he wrote Psalm 51 and also Psalm 32. He speaks of what it was like to live in that sin. He says... I no longer felt God's presence. He says in Psalm 32, 
verse 3 and 4. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night my hand was heavy upon me. Your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. As those two psalms show after this, David was full of joy again after he repented. Oh, sure, there were consequences. But the Lord God punished him with the death of his child and said to him that his life and the life of his descendants would be full of bloodshed because of the sword. But after his confession, David was full of God's spirit again. He felt God's presence again. He knew that his relationship with God was restored. And now he allowed God to be in control of his life again. And a great weight fell off his shoulder. When he sinned his sin with Bathsheba, he took things into his own hands. He wanted to be in control of his own destiny. He wanted to seek pleasure according to the desires of the flesh and not in accordance with the desire of the Holy Spirit. He pretended at that time that God did not exist, that God does not even see him. He ignored him, even though he was there. He did the same thing that hardened sinners do and that the people of the world do. They just go their own way without God. And that is why David cried out to God to create in him a new heart. He wanted to give the reins back to God. He wanted, to be, he wanted God to be in control of his destiny again. He knew otherwise he would be lost. But do you really think that David had to be afraid that God would totally leave him? That he had sinned the unpardonable sin against the Holy Spirit? No. And let me tell you why in the third point. It says in 1 John 3 verse 9, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. And in 1 Peter 1 verse 23 it says that you have been born again not of perishable seed but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So what does that mean? Well, when you have the seed of God within you, then you cannot perish. What is that seed? It is the living and abiding word of God. Brothers and sisters, David was brought up as a covenant child. And as such, he was brought up with the word of God. God's word lived in his mind, in his heart. He knew from when he was a little boy what God wanted from him because his parents taught him. 
He knew he was a child of God and that God created, created him in a covenant relationship with him. And relationships have rules. Rules of love and protection and caring. It's also the way it is within a marriage relationship. And because of sin, sadly, we need to be reminded of those rules. And that's what God does. That's why you heard the Ten Commandments this morning, the Ten Words of the Covenant. Every time you walk away from Him, He reminds you of His great love for you. He wants you back. He reminds you and me of what it means to be a child of God and of how wonderful that is. But if you wantonly ignore God and his commandments and keep on doing it, then in the end you are walking away from him. In the end you will no longer have a relationship. And then he takes his Holy Spirit away from you. That then is ultimately your doing and not God's doing. You left him. You don't know him any longer. David certainly was not at that point when he sinned his sin with Bathsheba. Oh sure it was a horrendous sin. And he knew it. He even was a murderer in order to maintain that relationship. God's word and his Holy Spirit worked in David's heart. He's a covenant child. And you see, that's why David was so miserable. And that is why he was also so receptive to the voice of God. And that's why he also wanted to be close to him again. After his repentance, David was afraid that God would remove his Holy Spirit from him. That's understandable, isn't it? He realized what a terrible sin he committed. Such sin makes you aware of God's holiness and your own wretchedness. But God is merciful and he didn't take his spirit away from him. God did not abandon him. On the contrary, he brought him back. He sent him Nathan. And that's true for all of us, brothers and sisters. At times, you or I may think that God has left us because we have done something really bad or remember the things we've done in our youth. But do you really think that's true? Well, sure, you may think that you have sinned too much, that you're not worthy of God's presence, that you're not worthy of salvation. But then you have to remember God's promises. That's why he gives promises to us and to our children already at the time when they're baptized. He promises that he will never take his Holy Spirit away from his children. Listen to what the Holy Spirit says in Ephesians 1, verse 13 and 14. Through the mouth of Paul, he says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, and here it comes, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee 
of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. It's true. We all grieve the Holy Spirit in numerous ways. We do it every day. We fall short of God's glory. We're miserable creatures. And that's why it says in Ephesians 4 verse 30, and do not grieve the Spirit of God. However, listen to what else it says in that text. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of God for the day of redemption. Let that sink in. It says in the well-known passage of Romans 8 that nothing can separate us from the love of God, not death, not your sins, not even the devil. You don't have to doubt your salvation. But I know there's still a big question in your mind. What about those passages that we read together in Hebrews and in Matthew? And what about somebody like King Saul? Does it not say in 1 Samuel 16, verse 14, that God took his Holy Spirit away from him? That it had departed from Saul? Did Saul not commit the unpardonable sin against the Holy Spirit? Well, who is Saul? He's a covenant child of God. He received the sign and the seal of the covenant. Nowhere does it say that the Spirit of the Lord was removed from him forever. It doesn't say anywhere in Scripture that King Saul was condemned to hell. It's very possible that he was. But it's also possible that he wasn't. We don't know if he was one of God's elect. God knows. Only he knows who is elect and who isn't. We don't. And so let's not jump to conclusions. Brothers and sisters, we must carefully distinguish between covenant and election. Let's look at the passage that we read together in Hebrews 6. There we read that those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God, that if they then fall away, they cannot again be restored to repentance. What then does that mean? Well, consider that within the context it was written. And the book of Hebrews is all about the new covenant established by the great high priest, Jesus Christ. The author is dealing here with God's covenant people. But just because you are in the covenant does not mean you are elect. Here in the book of Hebrews and elsewhere, he warns us that not all who belong to God's covenant will be saved. Not all the children that received the sign and the seal of the covenant at the time of their baptism and who are brought up here in this church will be saved. 
And then the author gives us also the example of the nation Israel, who had been included as God's covenant children, but who later turned their backs on him. For consider, many of the Israelites rejected God's covenant. Didn't they? They knew what God's covenant was all about, but they ignored its wonderful contents. The Holy Spirit did not find fertile soil within their hearts. Not all who are called God's children will be God's children into eternity. There are those who fall away. But only God ultimately only knows who they are. He is the only one who judges the heart. He is the only one who can truly see inside of us to know what lives within us. And so then, where does that leave us? Well, first of all, we are left with a warning. God tells us these things in his words because of his great love. He wants to remind us of the great gift of his Holy Spirit and that we must not reject him. You must not harden yourself in your sin. If David had continued to leave his sin unconfessed and continued to harden himself, then David too would have perished. But through God's grace, that did not happen. The fact that he was worried about his salvation shows that he loves God. Oh, sure, he was a great sinner. But our sins do not disqualify us from being children of God. Only our persistent hardening in sins does. There may be times in your life as well when you brought very low. There may be times when there are certain sins that you just will not break with. At that point, just like David, you don't feel God's presence anymore. You can't pray. But that doesn't mean that God's Holy Spirit isn't there. He will continue to work in your heart and he will restore you when you repent. How? Well, as a covenant child that you are, he will work in your heart. You may also have that same comfort about your loved ones, those who have gone astray. It may well be that God has not yet left them, even though they no longer worship with us. And that is why you have to pray for them and think about ways of bringing them back in God's graces. Be gentle, but do not give up on them and warn them and remind them of the need of the fellowship with God and his Holy Spirit. Who knows? They may still repent, even if it is on their deathbed. But now what about the other passages in Matthew 12? The other passage. What does the Lord Jesus mean when he says in Matthew 12, verse 31, that the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven? In order to understand that, again, you have to look at the context. You know, as you know, the Lord Jesus performed many miracles. We read in verse 15 that he healed all their sick, sick, and in verse 22 that he healed a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. Those are great miracles. People stood in awe of him. They were astonished, and they asked if that indeed could be the son of David. 
prophesied about in the Old Testament. It's understandable that they make that statement. For only God can do such work. Only he can perform such miracles. These are not the works of ordinary men, and they knew it. At this point, the Pharisees knew that this was a pivotal moment for them. They did not want Jesus to have the influence that he had, for they felt the crowd slipping away from them. They had to do something or say something to discredit Jesus. They could not have the people believe that God is among them. So they did something absolutely outrageous and blasphemous. They equated him with the devil himself. They said to the people, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. That is the last defense that he could come up with. For if it is not God who is doing this, then it must be the devil doing it. That was their sin, their blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Against all logic, they wanted the people to believe that Jesus was not sent by God, but that he is the devil himself. And then Jesus masterfully unmasks their hypocrisy and great unbelief and asks, how is it possible for Satan to drive out Satan? If that is the case, then his kingdom is divided against himself. And he further points out that only the Spirit of God can drive out demons. No one else can. Only the Holy Spirit has that kind of power. And therefore, the only logical conclusion you can come to is that Jesus himself is full of the Holy Spirit. Pharisees, and don't forget, they also had the sign and the seal of the covenant. Nevertheless, were out to destroy the work of God. They wanted to block the message of salvation. And they did so deliberately and with hardened hearts. They did so with a great hatred against the Son of God. And in this way, they sinned the unpardonable sin against the Holy Spirit. They did not sin against him because of ignorance or because they were on the wrong path for a little while, but because of deliberate and sustained disobedience. And now you can also understand why Jesus says in verse 32 that anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or of the age to come. Again, brothers and sisters, only God knows who committed that unpardonable sin. Leave that with him. He is the only one who can make such a determination. And so that's where we leave it. Ultimately, we ourselves never know who has committed the unpardonable sin and who has not. We don't know whom God has elected or whom he has rejected. Only he knows. But God does tell us for our comfort that God's elect can never fall away. Isn't it wonderful to know that? That's the great comfort of our election. 
And how do you know whether or not you're elect? Well, that shows by the fruit of your faith, that shows in your life. In spite of the fact that you and I sin against God all the time, God comes to us with his message of comfort and hope. He does not want any of us to despair. He wants us to embrace him and to stay close to him. And brothers and sisters, if you really fear that you have committed the unpardonable sin, then you don't have anything to be concerned about. Someone who has committed the unpardonable sin does not even concern himself with such a matter. He doesn't care. He doesn't believe in God anyway. But you do. Do you think those Pharisees who called Jesus the devil cared? No, Satan already had them completely in his grip. Of course, you can't just go on sinning. Of course not. But so you have to heed God's warning. God's warning to stay close to him. You have to pray to him and humble yourself before him daily. Don't allow the devil to control your lies. Slowly but surely, he will take you away. Don't let it happen to you. He tries to lure us away in so many ways. Stand on guard, brothers and sisters, boys and girls. Brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit is a wonderful gift. He gives lives. He gives life to those who want to live, who want to live in the truth, who want to live to the glory of God, who want to live with God into eternity. You and I have been given life through the Holy Spirit. What a blessing. What a celebration of life. Amen.